Well, Jeff Fuller with you, pastor at Living Hope Wesleyan Church. Hopeforvermont.org is where you can find more information. Certainly go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Living Hope Wesleyan Church on YouTube. Living Hope Wesleyan Church on YouTube. And also we are on Google Podcasts and iTunes now. Living Hope Wesleyan. Living Hope Wesleyan for those uh, platforms and great interviews because I think people's stories make our story much better. And certainly as believers, as Christians, we're simply God's hands and feet showing his love in practical ways. And uh, we're just beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. One that does that so well is Ashley Island. And Ashley, welcome. It's good to have you on. Pastor Jeff, thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here with you and to have this conversation. Well, thank you so much. And I heard you on a podcast. And actually today I uh, texted you or emailed that I was listening, uh, doing what I did in college, just binge watching or listening to all <laughs> interviews about you, but I first heard you and uh, you shared that you are in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My wife is from Sparta, Michigan. So uh, automatically there was a connection there, but being part of the Wesleyan denomination as I am, and we allow for, we promote, and we have several female women pastors and clergy. What has your experience been like being a female in that leadership position that in the past has been, well, seemingly more controversial than at other times? Sure. It's had its moments where it's been filled with a lot of joy and contentment and consolation and others, Pastor Jeff, that have been really difficult. Um, but I would say that my response to this call on my life um, was one of surprise. It's not one that I initially set out to step into as I did not see women in leadership in the church where I grew up. I grew up in Houston, Texas, um, raised in the Black Baptist Church, and then went to an all-girls private Catholic school for 13 years. And so I didn't see women necessarily leading from the front or leading in an authoritative role in, in the church. And so when I started teaching and I had mentors kind of pour into my life, um, I didn't know to expect resistance because I'd never experienced just what it meant to be a woman in the church, period. And so I almost, uh, I would say the gift that I received from God and the Holy Spirit in that time was the gift of protection from not knowing. And so I was able to step in with strength and a bit of, uh, a bit of timidity um, with the encouragement of mentors and others who had gone before me, uh, mostly white men who said, I think you have this gift of leadership and of teaching and you should step into it. And so I did with lots of questions, but um, I did so trusting God. And so, uh, you know, from time to time, I'll get the questions of like, should you really be doing this? Do you really, do you really, um, should you be uh, stepping into a leadership role? Um, I had one woman recently reach out and say, you're living in sin. Um, and so they've been really hurtful, I'll be honest, hurtful comments. Um, I've been the only woman in rooms of pastors meetings, um, even locally. Um, but I'd say what I lead with, and when people ask, how do I do it? Why do I still do it? Um, I point to the first miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding of Cana. And, and Mary said to these servants, do whatever he tells you. And so that's the mantra of my leadership and my call is I'm doing whatever Jesus is telling me to do. And it may not make sense to me, nor will it make sense always to others who are watching from the outside. But I truly believe that if we're saying yes in obedience, the fruit will will bear itself um, because of the Spirit's guidance. So. Oh, so good. So true. Man, I have so many questions and so much to get to. I always have to calm myself down because yeah. we have some time. Yeah. Uh, 
Hear a little bit about growing up in Texas. Did you have siblings? What type of family structure did you uh, grow up with? Certainly. I am the only child um, from my parents. And so I have half siblings all on my dad's side, um, which means I'm both the only child and the youngest of five, mm -hmm. I tell folks, which was an interesting dynamic because in many ways, my growing up did feel really lonely. I mean, I remember talking to myself as a kid and playing with dolls and uh, being upstairs by myself. You know, we had two floors. My parents were on the bottom floor. I was an only child on the, the second floor. And so that really lent itself to creativity. I was a really creative kid, um, had a huge imagination. Um, but my siblings, uh, the, the next brother ahead of me, he's six years ahead. And my oldest sister is 17 years ahead of me. Um, so there's quite a gap. They were really more like um, like parental figures or aunts and uncles uh, more than, than siblings at the time. But now we're, we're really close as adults or getting closer as adults. Um, but it was it was interesting because my parents were both um, both believers. So I tell folks, I don't have this really tumultuous uh, coming to faith story. I remember reading the Precious Moments Bible that I was given as a kid and immediately just being drawn to this person of Jesus Christ and, and saying, yeah, I believe in this guy. And and at seven years old in my home church getting up to walk to the front of the room to say I wanted to be baptized. Um, and so I really felt like I had this strong connection to who Christ was from a young age. And obviously that was shaped and matured over time um, in experience and in leaning into other people's faith. Um, but I, I really do credit my parents and then my grandmother, who's no longer with us now. She um, had a farm in the middle of nowhere, Texas, that I spent many summers and spring breaks frequenting. Um, and I saw her pray on her knees every night for a really long time. And I knew she must really, really love God to spend that much time in prayer. Right. And so that's where I learned to see faith that was intimate and personal in action. Um, but yeah, both my parents worked in corporate America. So they were really successful in the oil industry in Texas. Um, and going to this all girls Catholic school for 13 years, uh, I learned to not be afraid to raise my hand and lead because there wasn't that self-conscious, you know, dynamic of shrinking in the presence of, of uh, male counterparts. Um, but also uh, deepen my faith and appreciation for sacrament um, alongside other parts of my faith. So I had multiple streams of faith complementing one another in my growing up year. So it was a beautiful, a beautiful childhood. And my, my parents are, are wonderful people and they still support me and my family to this day and are cheering us on. And obviously like any family, we've had our, our rocky moments, but um, overall I've been really gifted with a wonderful family background. So you said you visited your grandmother. She lived more in the country. Did you grow up in the country or was it more suburbia or city? I grew up in the suburbs of Houston. And so we were about two and a half hours away from our family farm. So it, the farm has been in our family for over a hundred years. It's recognized by the state of Texas as a as a heritage farm. Um, and so we used to raise cattle and uh, back in way back when my mom was little, they had other animals, but I grew up living in a suburban city lifestyle, um, but spending a lot of time with my grandmother, learning how to feed cattle and how to put them in the pen and took them to auction. Sorry for our vegetarian or <laughs> friends, but we raised beef, we raised beef cattle 
um, and uh, just really learned how to put my hands in the ground and appreciate what the earth gives us. And so it was both. It was a, a mix. Really love the city still, but also have a deep appreciation for the country and silence and what it means to work the land. So I'm up here in Vermont. Vermont used to be known for having more cows than it did of people. And so <laughs> we're familiar with that. We go to probably a more serious topic. And sure. uh, certainly in this climate of 2020, uh, there's always misgivings or stereotypes. And sometimes yeah. we think those of color, black people, uh, they're like, oh, they're either inner city or whatever the stereotype you might have. But I sure. think a perfect balance of understanding working with your hands in a farm type setting, but also growing up just outside of Houston. Yeah. How important is it that we have conversations to get to know people to break down some of those stereotypes? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Jeff. I think it's everything. I think it's everything. I think the gift of faith and the story, this radical story of the gospel was given to us through narrative and storytelling. And I actually think that is an underutilized and um, lesser known gift that we have with each other in relationship is that our stories are actually reflections of who God is in different packages. Yeah. We get these different facets. It's like turning a diamond and you see how the light hits it from different angles. I think we all have the ability within our stories to both reflect and to testify to who God is being made in his image and likeness. Um, but I think in our current climate, we have um, given in to the quick pick aside um, narrative where if you don't fit within one camp or the other, there's very little room for either a third way or another option or different experience. And so storytelling helps us dissolve and dismantle the lies or the stereotypes that may have been embedded within our own mindsets and our own thinking about who a person is and what they have to to bring to the table or might offer. Um, so I wonder nowadays whether or not storytelling might actually help us heal and help us pause and reconsider someone's experience and how it might enhance or shape our own. Yeah, I agree. Uh, most definitely with that statement. AshleyIsland.com is your website. Ashley with two E's, Island with an E-I. AshleyIsland.com. And uh, just talk to me a little bit about having your website. Is it interesting having your name as a website versus that of Mars Hill where you're employed? Or what are your thoughts? Because you have a book, Humankind, that came out in April. Uh, excellent book. I've only read excerpts. I just have to tell that in interest. Sure. Closure. But um, is it kind of cool or do you kind of shrink at your name being out there, having so many Instagram and Twitter followers? What has that process been like for you? It's interesting, Jeff, because I, I started this website uh, before I worked at Mars Hill. And so, you know, one of the things the viewers and listeners might appreciate is that I've always loved words. I've loved writing. I've loved reading since I was little. I mean, my mom sent me a picture from her home in Texas of my first book that I wrote and had chapters and character descriptions and everything. So the idea of communicating truth and beauty through writing has always been a part of who I am. And so I started doing this more frequently, um, but wanted a place to separate out um, what I do in the, in the church space and as officially with my pastor hat on, um, although I truly believe we're all in ministry, whether that's home ministry or officially a vocationally within the church. 
Um, but that's a place for me to park my thoughts on um, exegeting our current cultural climate or um, speaking to a larger audience outside of our uh, church's community body. Um, but when the book came out, obviously that was a natural landing place uh, to talk about the book. I haven't updated my blog in forever. So if you read it, it's, it's pretty old. I have some catching up to do. I try to keep up with podcasts, but I'm behind on that with COVID. Um, but it's it's interesting. I did not set out like many of us to have a following. Mm. Um, before COVID hit, the, the following, when you talk about social media was minimal. It was only after like Ahmaud Arbery and uh, Breonna Taylor and some of my responses um, to some of the racial um, unrest that we see the dust kick being kicked up in. It's not new, it's just more widely visible. Um, that this following kind of took off and it's been a lot to manage. So it's not necessarily something I, I, I like managing. I, I'm not in ministry, I'm not in public leadership for the following, but I do think people are looking for voices that are intercepting the dissension and the contention and division right now to speak truth and life and hope. And what seems so bleak and dark. So for the likes of you, perhaps myself and other pastors or leaders, um, I would say now is not a time to shrink and to say, let, let me be like less vocal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and perhaps that is the call uh, to be to be unseen for a time. But I do think people are really thirsty for the truth of the word in bite-sized snippets in ways that are palatable and accessible to them. So in that regard, my website, I'm fine with it because I think it's accomplishing a larger purpose and goal. So I'm going to put you on the spot. You have to think back to a podcast you were on because in the podcast okay. you said that words are so plentiful that people treat them as neutral, but yeah. they're supposed to be purposeful, not plentiful. Could you just talk a little bit about that, especially when there's so much rhetoric in an election year, but as we've mentioned again, with the social unrest and injustice taking place? Yeah. If we think of words as particles and we think of the multiple and myriad sources from which we're ingesting words right now, both, uh, the visible word that we're reading perhaps in a news article or an online op-ed or the words that we're hearing from an interview on a news station or perhaps a podcast. There's so many sources. And if these are all particles, if all of these words and opinions and perspectives are particles, we are in a, a swirling tornado, a tunnel <laughs> of options and angles and opinions. So in that regard, words are really plentiful. And we can pretty much find any perspective we want to match our own and to affirm and to confirm the ways in which we see the world. Um, but I, I do think, uh, even this morning, I was talking to a coworker who said, I was listening to the news station this morning and I stopped and really asked myself, what in the world are they actually talking about? What if substance is being said here? It, it almost sounds as if if we stop and pause and listen to many of these sources, it's just cacophony. Like there's no real, there's no real point or formation in the words. And I think now we can't, um, we can't hold on to or root into words that are just there and present. Might we ask ourselves a different question? What words are lending themselves to our formation? 
And for those of us who are following Christ, our Christ likeness, which words are drawing us closer to the heart of God and closer to one another in healed and whole community. Um, and if that's the rubric or the filter through which we're receiving and, um, and approaching the words that we're exposed to, that might change how often or um, how plentiful the sources are that we go to for the words that we're engaging right now. It's really good. Uh, so behind me, there's a picture of your family and you're the mother of three. And I'm just bringing up this uh, website now, marshill.org, where you're <laughs> pastor, but also your husband is on staff there. And I say this kind of tongue in cheek, but when you're trying to talk about words, how difficult is it to have your spouse on staff with you and not to mince words, but then not to overuse words? Oh, that's such a good question. What's really unique about our family dynamic, and by the way, I was so distracted seeing my kids behind you because I just, I love our kids. They're really wonderful kids. Um, but Del and I have never known another dynamic other than working together on the same church staff. Hmm. We met on church staff together on his first day of work at a different church in Chicagoland. And so our dynamic is, is it's so normal for us that if we were to not work together, I think that would feel really odd for us. But we've come up with perhaps in some cases on purpose and other cases just ac accidentally or um, just by way of our natural rhythms and habits, uh, ways for us to keep short accounts with one another while we're also in work or professional settings. So even this morning we were in a staff meeting together and we know that it's kind of fun for everyone when we go back and forth and, and have a little playful banter with each other on a Zoom call. Um, but we also know that there are times when we have to, at the end of a day, um, purposefully check in and use our words purposefully because even though we've been in the same space or been talking to the same people, we might think we know the experience of our day but it actually takes more work for us to be explicit about how we're actually doing and feeling. Or if there's tension, we have to come together in a different setting sometimes. Sometimes we'll go on a date outside of our house to talk about um, any, what we call withholds we have with one another. So we're not blending these environments where we're working, living, and then doing life together. But our kids have been the brightest spot in um, the past few months. We recently finalized our adoption of our youngest daughter. And that was a huge point of celebration for our family. Um, we're definitely done uh, in our purview having children. <laughs> but God, God's done stranger things, so who knows? Um, but we love being a family that's doing life in the church, exposing our kids to what it means to being incarnational in community um, in the church and and being good neighbors to, to our, our very street here, especially in time like COVID. So it's been fun and has its challenges as well. Well, that's uh, at the time of this recording, it's October 6th of uh, 2020. You mentioned COVID. How different or the adjustment for pastoring, but also parenting, what's been more difficult, uh, homeschooling in that aspect or sermons online and trying to balance being in person with those that think you need to be or being online with people that think you should not be meeting in person at all? I don't, I cannot honestly think of what's been harder. I would say that, um, it would be, I would be hard pressed to find a pastor who got into 
ministry or answer the call to ministry in order to preach to a camera. Yeah, yeah. I love people and I love our community. And so um, this past Sunday was our first in-person expression. So we're still doing online and we're doing minimal like in-person offering. So it was my first time teaching and preaching live on a stage since March. And I wept for the first few mm. minutes. I was so emotional because there's something about being proximate to one another in the ball. Mm. And yet I deeply believe that having distance and following protocols in a way that's honoring um, is actually compassionate. And even for my own family, we've got some folks with um, some medical uh, fragile realities. And so it's, it's been really difficult, but I, I will say Ronald Rollheiser's um, domestic monastery was extremely helpful in the first weeks of COVID because he paints this picture of our home as a potential environment for deep formation. And so as a parent, I mean, we were without a space to go when we were in quarantine, we had these three kids and both my husband and I were needing to record, we're needing to be live in situations like this. And then a kid would interrupt the screen. Yeah. <laughs> it's just mass chaos. And I was at my end because I'm an introvert. I need my space. <laughs> I love quiet and stillness as disciplines. Um, but I was, I was learning. I feel like God was forming and teaching me in those weeks what it means to be present and to see invitation even in the chaos. And so that was hard because I realized the height and the depth of my control and really how deeply ingrained my own perspective of what should be happening right now and how it should go really ran thinking I was surrendered. But all it took was um, one day my son sat on my Bible while I was doing sermon prep and I, can't tell you how livid I was. And here, here's the spirit inviting me to say, I'm showing you where life is right now. Yeah. It's in the writing of, of the sermon, yeah, but right now it's in it's in being present with your son. And so both have presented its challenges, but I'd say there have been good learnings from each reality. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty fortunate because my son is a freshman in college, actually, Grand Rapids Community College, uh, living with my brother-in-law and his family in Sparta. And my daughter's a junior in high school, and she loves school, and so she's pretty self-sufficient. But as I've been recording these podcast interviews and uh, being online, I've had three occasions where I was live recording. One, our dog got mixed up with a porcupine. Again, <laughs> So my daughter's yelling at me and I'm trying to be professional. And then on my sports uh, podcast, quick uh, shameless plug for that. Jake. Yeah, go for it. Interviews. Uh, I'm doing a live interview with an alum of North Carolina. I'm a big Tar Heel fan, basketball fan. And my wife's sending me a text that she needs a AAA number because the car's on the side of the road up in smoke and the engine blew. They're safe and everything. But I'm just like, this is not what you get typically on a Sunday morning with a live congregation in front of you. So No, not at all. Wow. It's uh, pretty crazy. Hey, so one podcast you were on, I'm trying to get out of the way so you can see it. The Holy Post podcast behind me. I love that podcast. Those guys do a great job. However, some would say they're a little bit uh, controversial, perhaps, <laughs> possibly. I find them, I guess, enlightening. There's probably a better word. So I ask this delicately, but I ask this because I have friends from New Jersey that are not white. Mm -hmm. And when the election came for President Barack Obama first term, 
They were asked if they felt pressure to vote for him simply because they had the same skin color as him. And their response was so guarded, it made me uncomfortable. But as you've shared in a few podcasts and as your book, Humankind Reflects, sometimes there's this pressure to reflect the entire black community when you're simply Ashley Island. How do you engage in conversations when some people might think you have a voice, you have a platform, why don't you use this for their personal agenda versus how you feel God's leading you or calling you to be involved? That's such a good question, Pastor Jeff. And I actually just fielded an email that was in response to something I posted. So this was in real time, a response saying, while you're on the topic of blank, why don't you talk about blank more often? And in really sitting in this response, I, I, had, a, I had a knee-jerk response ready, and I knew that wasn't the right one. Um, so in sleeping on it overnight, I came to this conclusion that right now, especially because we're in a different technological reality, where many people are looking to the same voices and faces online, I, I think that was a time for me to empower this person who I knew um, was a follower of Christ in saying the fullness of the body of Christ needs to come alive. Mm. The fullness of it. If we are just looking to the mouthpiece, if we are just looking to the ear or the heart or the eye, always we will take ourselves out of commission as ministers of reconciliation. And so in moments like that, what I usually do is encourage someone to say, if that's what you're passionate about, if that's what God has put on your heart, if that is a personal conviction of yours, then please encourage us with it. Because it is too much of a burden for myself as a woman of color, or for really anyone, to have to carry the weight of all of the world's groanings. Right? I care about so many things that if I were just to, to uh, sit and sift through the Rolodex of things that my heart beats so passionately for, and that I think grieve or are cared about from the heart of God, I would be up all night. I would not be able to rest. And so it really is a call to everyone to say, I might be talking about racial reconciliation because that's my, that's my lived experience. That's something that's unique to how God has positioned me in the world for such a time as this. It's something I care about. It doesn't mean I don't care about a plethora of other things. But if you, if you have this personal conviction, then now is a time to lend your voice to that conviction and help shape and form others. Yeah. Um, so to, to resist the temptation to use a few as a crutch and as a, um, a holding cell for all of our, our culture or our world's problems um, now is the time to be deployed as yeah. ministers of reconciliation, wherever your influence might lie. That's really good. And uh, where we are in Vermont, there's not a huge minority population. And uh, some have said, well, Jeff, you need to get to know more black people. And I'm like, well, I can go to Burlington. But <laughs> I think for our context, we need to find more people. And I say this uh, carefully, but more rednecks or native Vermonters or people that have put up their guard against church just to say that God is for everyone. And as he brings, opens doors for opportunities to interact with all people, we're open to sharing the gospel with all people. Yeah. Um, I just find it 
intriguing how some think, well, I I was at a pastor's conference a little while ago, and uh, one pastor said, all we need is a couple more uh, Mexicans and a couple more, um, and he named a country, to come to our church because then we're going to have 15 different races and ethnicities. Wow. And I, and I just paused and I said, I think that's great, but where do you live? Is there even that opportunity? They said, no, we'd have to have them probably drive in from 40 minutes away. And I thought maybe they're missing what the gospel is about in, you know, your area and then reaching out from there. But what say you uh, to those that now we're trying to be so diverse that sometimes we miss the point of the gospel of loving our neighbor as ourselves? Uh, I love that question. There's there is a there's a book by Will Willimon, who he's been just an encouraging voice. I'm just in reading uh, about his preaching and his homiletical style. And he said something um, in one of his books, I can't remember which one, um, but he said, as a pastor, you can't necessarily pick your congregation. Part of the call is that a congregation comes along with it. And the call is complete when the pastor chooses to say yes to loving the people that God has so chosen to be a part of that body. And that just, that gave me so much rest and peace in saying, yeah, I have a choice of which congregation I'm a part of and that I serve, but then can I be um, faithfully resolved to love the people who are right in front of me without this discontent of who's not there yet? Holding a vision and a hope in mind, right? So for our context here in Grand Rapids, um, part of what Mars Hill we're excited about is building another community closer to the heart of Grand Rapids proper that is racially reconciled and more diverse. But right now that's not our reality. And so if I'm going to skip over who's already in my congregation to get to that hopeful future, um, then I'm, I'm not leaning into the call to love my neighbor well. Um, one of the gifts that quarantine afforded our family was getting to know our actual neighbors better. And I felt that as a, as a personal conviction of saying, if I can't do that here on my own street, then why, why, why would I deem myself ready to do that externally and outside the context of my, my own neighborhood? And so this has been a practice of surrender and of, of um, recommitting myself to the body that, that Christ has called me to. Um, and that doesn't mean we have to let go of our, our dreams and, and our, our visions for what the church might be. Um, but these folks in the homes around me need the gospel, need good news. Um, our folks sitting in our pews and chairs right now or sitting on their couches watching online need the gospel. And so might we be vessels and obedient ones in preaching good news and loving our neighbors well right now. Uh, so wise. And I think uh, that comes through with your book, Humankind, as well, which was uh, out in April. And now people can find it, whether on your website or Amazon, wherever books are sold, if bookstores are open. If not, just uh, <laughs> grab it online. But I was at another pastor's conference several years ago when they said that Christian uh, men in particular, this was a men's conference, need to be good instead of nice. And I like in your book, you said we need to be kind before nice. Could you just share that? Yeah. So when you think about nice, being nice to other people, I think of mostly the gestures 
or the actions that take place in human interaction that we do out of our own power, that we do because it might make us feel good. Like we hold a door open for someone or let someone else in, in traffic. But I think kindness has a different kind of power to it. And it's not saying that being nice isn't helpful or can't get us somewhere, but I don't necessarily think it's enough because kindness is a fruit of the spirit. Hmm. And the fruit of the spirit is infused with spirit power, which means in being surrendered and submitted and living a life that's connected to the spirit of God, we will act outside of our own strength. We will be in interactions and in relationship outside of what we are able to do on our own. And thus we will see fruit that's being born, not just because we say it is so, but because the spirit's power is connected to it. So I think kindness is a part of God's character. I was just reading in Hosea this morning, and I believe it's chapter 11, where there's this beautiful picture of God leading his people. And it's almost like he's, he's talking about a child. He's saying, I took you by the hand. I led you by the cords of kindness. Um, and then in a different translation later on, I think it's in Romans, um, Paul says, God is kind, but he's not weak mm-hmm. or he's not soft. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think culturally we've taken kindness or simply being nice as maybe a little puny right. or flimsy. Like it doesn't actually have the kind of girth it needs to get any results in our up into the right kind of culture. Um, but connected to the power of God and understanding that kindness, Christos, is a part of who God is and how we are in relationship with him, then we understand that kindness actually does have power beyond maybe what we've given it credit for. Well, I like that a lot. And I've heard it said too regarding the Beatitudes with being meek. It means a quiet strength, not being walked over. And that's so important. Uh, your book is so personal, uh, vulnerable, Um and I just want to address a couple of things, which I don't think you'll be offended because, well, I'll open I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually applied for a youth pastor position several years ago to a uh, Chinese church that wanted to reach the uh, second generation kids with an American voice. I was adopted from Korea, all of that. The pastor said, Jeff, you're too much of a banana to mm. be uh, hired for our church and sometimes as i was raised adopted you know you grow up you kind of laugh things off you kind of just you it is what it is you understand the intent of the meaning but of all people i'm thinking a chinese pastor who's trying to reach uh these kids to say that it was hurtful and you just kind of process it how do you balance laughing things off of people are people, God's for me, with actually processing that hurt or that discomfort and knowing that God is your shield and God sees you for the beautiful person that you are. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I'm sorry. And I, I in the book, I talk about be, being called an Oreo, which is um, a pretty derogatory term for someone who's black on the outside, but more culturally white in expression. And so... I'd say, I'd say this for me, a lot of the processing in the book happened in retrospect. It was a reflection from journal entries and understanding that, you know, and trying to maintain relationship with certain people, um, the 
stickiness of that relationship relied on how I responded to something that was painful. And so I'd say, start there. Like, is this a relationship that you're hoping endures for, for the long term? If, if, it's a, if it's a stranger passing by, then I can process quietly in a place where I am reassured of my worth um, and, and who God calls me to be as his daughter. Um, and the relationship is, is kind of like a non-issue because it's a stranger, that's someone I don't know very well. But I think what's almost harder is when it's someone we do deeply respect or do long to be in long-term relationship with. And then there becomes a separation of what's mine to process on my own because of the pain that I've endured. And then what's mine to take back to the person and say, hey, we've got to talk about this. And so in writing this book, I've actually had to have some hard conversations with folks um, who'd hurt me in order to have integrity in how the stories were written so that that person didn't read them <laughs> and was all of a sudden surprised by the fact that they were either explicitly named in the book or um, they knew that I had written them into the, the pages of, of the narrative. And so, um, and that's, that can be hard, but it can also be really beautiful and redemptive if we're in a place to be willing to share vulnerably our hearts and how a certain interaction has impacted us. Um, hopefully we're, we're longing for healing and restoration. What led you to write this book? A simple question that my uh, literary agent asked me again. So I, I was excited to write because I love writing. Like it had nothing to do with the fact that I was a pastor. I just, I really love writing. And he said, well, what do you want to write about? And without thinking, I said, kindness. Hmm. And he said, say more, why, why that? And we have to understand it was 2018. And we were two years into the current presidential term. And what I was anticipating was that the conversations I was overhearing at dinner tables or in coffee shops would just get more intense yeah. and get more divisive. And I was so, my, my heart was so heavy, Pastor Jeff, because of what I was hearing and how I was seeing the fabric of our humanity kind of being picked at and, and plucked apart. I said, if, if this keeps going in a direction um, that I think it's going, we, we are going to be maybe may irreparably um, impacted here. And so I wanted to offer something in the way of what it means to engage with truth, but also with lots of heart and empathy. And I didn't write it as like another um, leadership book. I, I, it wasn't a, a highly academic yeah. offering. Um, I, don't, I don't know what led me to kind of list out parts of my story but I wanted this to be about storytelling. I wanted this to be an invitation for us to engage our own stories and to consider someone else's as another way. Um, all I was anticipating for the year 2020 was a big presidential election. <laughs> like people are like, are you a prophet? Did you see a pandemic coming? No, none of that. This was all as a response to what was possible because mm -hmm. 2020 presidential election. And now here we are with so much more of a layered um, <laughs> canvas here. So um, I, I, it was in response to political discord, but I think it's speaking to a lot more. Yeah. 
because you journal uh, so often or d- have developed that habit, did it make it easier to write this book? I've thought it would be awesome to be an author, but to have that discipline of writing every day, I kind of balk at um, that <laughs> challenge. I'd rather uh, golf and listen to podcasts <laughs> and uh, sit down and write if I'm being honest. Uh, but yeah. Did that help in the process or is this something that you've always wanted to do? So it was just kind of natural coming out. It definitely helped. I mean, if we open this cabinet behind me, I have about 10 or 12 journals that are full. Hmm. And so this has always been a part of just how I process the world is through writing. I just never did it publicly for anyone else to read. And so it was pretty easy for me to go back and kind of um, take a, a list or a survey of the really meaningful parts of my life and kind of journal them out and start that way. Um, and it's interesting, Humankind's actually not my first book technically, that's the one I talk about. But when I was um, on maternity leave with our second child, our son, I had this poem pop to mind and it was really me processing what it meant in that moment to be a mother to a black boy in America. Mm-hmm and what I wished for him and what his relational tapestry might look like when he grows up. And so in the notes app of my phone, I wrote this poem and it turned into this kid's book that I self-published and I didn't publish it because I wanted necessarily everyone to read it. <laughs> it was really for him and maybe my mom, but um, I, I just, I love what writing gives to us and it also helps me look back. I can pull a journal out and look back on God's faithfulness and the prayers that were prayed, and the ways in which I thought I was stuck. But then I then I saw the liberation come. I, I saw the answer to it pages later. Um, so I will say journaling is a really great discipline to pick up if one wants to write a book, because it helps you get in the habit and practice of um, writing almost every day. Uh, when you think of your children, uh, specifically your son that you wrote that poem to, are you more hopeful in this current climate or are you more concerned? Hmm. I have a high level of concern. And I think that is nestled right next to my grounding and hope. Yeah. I think they're cozied up to one another right now because without the hope, I, I would not, I don't think I'd be able to do this. I, I wouldn't be able to parent in a way that was, optimistic and encouraging. I think it'd be more fear-based. Um, but I'm also, I'm highly concerned for the world that we are leaving for our kids. Yeah. And I'm hoping that, um, that there is a redemptive edge for the generation of kids that are, you know, 10 and under right now. And even for your kids, Jeff, that are in college trying to figure out what is my life? What does it look like to be a functioning, whole, content adult in a season like right now when so much is being taken away or, or retooled? Like success is different now. Um, And so uh, I'm hoping that if this is, if 2020 is the junk drawer that we are opening and everything is is out there and exposed. My prayer is that in the years to come, we will do the hard work of throwing out what we don't need or that doesn't serve us well, or reorganizing this thing in a sense, um, in a way that brings healing and restoration and reconciliation too. Yeah, 
And not to over-spiritualize, but as we're both pastors, we do have a responsibility to share what the gospel says, that things are not going to get better, but yeah. God will never leave us or forsake us, and God is for us. And so we can give that hope, but it is a difficult time. And not that we want to overprotect our children. Well, maybe we do. We want to overprotect our children, but we need to let them be exposed to God's truth so they receive all that he has for them. And I know as a pastor it can get a little difficult. Yeah. And so with preaching, for me, I've fought the temptation to say, you know, come to church Sunday morning, find all the answers, and then just work out your salvation with fear and trembling the rest of the week. What is <laughs> it's your, not bad. <laughs> what does your sermon prep look like during or in the middle or even at the beginning of a pandemic? Yeah. This is the first time I've really talked to, to my sermon prep in since COVID. And it's interesting. I'm noticing something that now because of the restraints and the constraints on my time and what space looks like with our new family dynamic. And, you know, I'm, I'm having to trust that God is taking my loaves and fishes, what I can give and to multiply it for his glory. So I'm actually spending less time in sermon prep, but what I'm doing more of, I'm actually starting at a different place. Mm -hmm. I'm not starting with um, exegesis. I'm not starting with um, a commentary. What I'm doing is I'm actually jur journaling out a thought from the text that is more filled with heart. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking the question, Ashley, where's the ache? Where's the ache in you? Where's the ache in our congregation right now? And how is this text meeting that place? And I'm starting there, which feels really vulnerable and feels like, oh, I don't know, this is not, <laughs> this is not conventional at all. Um, but I'm, what I'm finding is that my heart is shown on the page. I feel like God's heart is shown on the page. And then I'm coming around that structure and I'm like, this is a trellis. I'm making sure that uh, either with any resources or commentary or whatever, that it's, it's nice and, and grounded. Um, so what that means is it's shorter. I mean, I used to be preaching 45 minute sermons, which for some people they love and other people like that's way too long. But again, Black Baptist Church coming up in Texas. So that's short for some. But now because we've gone to an online reality, we're going 20, 25. And that means I have less time to say all the words. And if you can't tell by now, I'm a verbal processor. Um, Less time to say all the words and more intentionality to, Lord, what are you saying to this body for this time in this place? Yeah. And spirit move. I trust you to move. Right. And uh, it seemed as though God's revealed to me that vulnerability is so important, but sometimes we just vomit everything yeah. all over. But without accountability, that vulnerability really goes nowhere. And I just love the truth and power of the gospel, the movement of the Holy Spirit that just says, hey, I know you're broken because I'm the healer. I'm the great. Right. And we can take those next steps. Uh, something you mentioned in a podcast was uh, to the effect that there's always more to do. And I think that uh, you can always... Um, you can always do more, but you can never do enough. And that's the importance of boundaries and balancing with a family, with a ministry, with everything taking place. How have you found a healthy rhythm with what's going on, but just being so concerned and in love with your own family? Yeah. Two words, and that's daily bread. Hmm. I've gone from 
projecting six months to a year out in strategies and programs and events and even family vacations to now getting really intentional about asking the question, Lord, what do you have for today? And so I'll make a list. I'll oftentimes make a list in the, in you know, the top part of my morning. And then if I don't get to everything, I just don't get to everything. And I find myself telling people ahead of time, I'm going to disappoint you. I find myself saying, I am limited. Mm-hmm. I think what's changed is I'm getting more comfortable with my brokenness and my limitations in this season. It's not necessarily that that's different from what it was a year ago. It's just that the environment and the context that we're in is making that oh so very clear. And I don't have the energy to fight it anymore. Right? I don't, I I can be more honest and tell um, myself and others the truth about this is what I can do. And this is what I can't do. So I've said no, uh, probably at least three times to one church um, up by you, Jeff, that I really love that like, will, will you record a sermon for us for Advent? And I have just said no. And it's not because I don't love our brothers and sisters there. It's not because I don't love preaching. It's just that in order to say yes to the things that are begging for my attention and my energy now, the no's have to be just as intentional as the yeses. Um, and so it's getting really comfortable with limitations. That's been a saving grace in this season. Oh, that's great. Ashley Island makes some time. AshleyIsland.com. Instagram and Twitter is Ashley underscore Island. That's with two E's for Ashley and an E-I for Island. But Ashley, we thank you again for making the time. A couple uh, quick questions, then we'll get to yell. These might be fun. They might not be. Uh, but <laughs> if you were to play a character in a fictional movie... Would you like to play the hero or the villain? Oh, the real emo side of my soul says the villain. (laughs) Because I would, I and that might, what does that say about me? I don't know. But I would hope that there's a redemption in that. Like, I would hope that there would be not just, like, a, a saving point for the hero where the hero gets celebrated, but that, like, the villain gets brought along, like in Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, where Mortimer Mouse or whatever his name is becomes part of the clubhouse. Like, I would hope that that would be true for me. Hey, that is a great answer because I always say the villain because it's a fictional movie. And as a pastor, I always feel like I need to play the hero. So if it's fictional, but with that redemptive quality, that's huge. The best answer I heard, somebody said that they wanted to play like Captain Jack Sparrow. So he's the oh. villain that is the hero. So that's- <gasps> yes, that's a good loophole. Yeah, it could be. Oh, good. And I stole this first part of the question from Hernando Planos. He's a sport uh, basketball coach, sports guy. Okay. And he said, if or when the feature film is made about your life, hmm. who plays you in that feature film? Oh, my goodness. Where'd, I'd have to say either Viola Davis, who is amazing, or, oh, is it weird to say like Michelle Obama? Yeah. <laughs> She's not an actress, but I feel like I just want to have lunch with her an excuse to like give her direction on my life. Like that'd be fun. Yes. I, yeah. I would say Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Not that we don't look, it, maybe we look alike, but I just think that'd be I love it. a great movie. Hey, so, and then this uh, final question, kind of serious, wrapping everything yeah. up that we talked about. 
Um, do you feel like you need to prepare differently for a male interview mm. or a pastor's group that is mostly male? Or have you found that ability to be uh, content and have that identity so you can just settle in and just be yourself, whether it's a conversation like this or in-person face-to-face conversation with other colleagues? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a, there's absolutely a temptation to show up um, less jovial, a little bit more measured. Um, and I'm, I think over the past few months, I've given some of that away. Um, I, again, it's the energy. I don't have the energy I once used to to posture. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, so it's me. And, and I think alongside of that, I'm also more comfortable and unapologetic about who God is and who God has been to me in my life. And so with those two combined, I, I show up as I am. And if, if that's not enough for some folks, I don't have to carry the weight of that. And that feels so freeing to say. And so, yep, I believe in my brothers in Christ. I believe that many of them believe in me and the work God's doing in my life and my ministry. Um, and that is a joy. And so, uh, like a stereotypical pastor, I said last question, but I have multiple conclusions. (laughs) So dig into that a little bit. Uh, My daughter's going to be 17 December 3rd. Mm. I want her to have such a healthy identity. And for you, as a grown woman, mature, um, how would you phrase that or how would you have received that being 17 years old? a junior in high school, trying to fit in, but trying to show that you love Jesus more than anything else in life? If you lead with the latter, if you lead with showing your love for Christ, he will take care of you. Mm -hmm. And what you will experience, both in the moment and for the rest of forever that we are here on earth, you will experience loss you will experience suffering. And perhaps the greatest gift is letting go of whether or not suffering will come and to try and identify with Christ and suffering, know that, knowing that he's, he's gone first. And so that's, that's my, so I hope for your daughter, that's hope for my daughters. Um, and that don't be, don't be scared of the suffering because it actually invites us to, to deeper intimacy with Christ um, than we may have ever hoped for. Ashley, thank you so much for making the time. AshleyIsland.com, pastor at MarsHill.org, Ashley underscore Island on Instagram and Twitter. Ashley, it's been a pleasure, a privilege. Thank you so much. Jeff, thanks for having me. Bless you, brother. And again, that's Ashley Island. Make sure you go out and get a copy of the book, Humankind. Humankind is the name of the book. You can subscribe to uh, our YouTube channel, Living Hope Wesleyan Church. We're on Google Podcasts and iTunes now as Living Hope Wesleyan. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Be blessed. Join us 9 o'clock for our online worship gathering or any other time, hopeforvermont.org.